Well, thanks, Darren. Great to have that uh, reading open. Uh, if you can keep it with you, uh, that's where we'll be focusing our attention tonight. I uh, want to remind you as we start that uh, there will be opportunity to ask questions at the end of this um, message. And since we're talking about the government and Christians, it's entirely possible that you might have some questions. So if they occur to you on the way through, maybe jot them down on the back of your Caring Connect card and then you can remember. I'm going to pray and ask that God would help us uh, to understand his word tonight. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. Thanks, Father, that we have access to it still today. We pray tonight that it might live in our hearts because you're present by your Holy Spirit. Challenge and change us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so tonight we're going to be thinking about government and about Christians. But I wanted to start by thinking, first of all, about freedom. Uh, we sang in the song uh, that the ones who the sun sets free are free, free indeed. That's a wonderful thing. We are free from our guilt, from punishment. We are free to come boldly into God's presence. We're also free here in Australia to assemble without any great difficulty, aren't we? we there was no one outside hassling us. Uh, there was no challenge coming here uh, other than the obvious wind and, and heat. But you're here and we don't have any external threat to this gathering. And it's such a regular thing for us that we don't even notice it. We just assume that that's the same for everyone in the world, and it's not. We are profoundly free here in Australia to worship and honour our God. And we should be really thankful for that. However, there are things in our environment that will challenge our freedoms. And just at the moment, uh, in our public space, particularly in our political space, some of the challenges of free, uh, freedom for Christians are being challenged. So before the parliament at the moment, uh, Senator Penny Wong has put together a, uh, a, an adjustment to the Discrimination Act, which could potentially um, impact the freedom of Christian schools uh, and in the state that it's in at the moment could impact, at least theoretically, um, our ability to teach whatever we'd like even here. Now, that's currently in Parliament, and there'll be some debating this week. As we think about that, how the government impacts our freedom as Christians, we're now at the heart of what we're trying to look at tonight. And so we're going to look at chapter 13, but as we do that, context is always the key. And so you'll hear me say this again and again. We can't just dive into a particular passage and start reading it. We need to think about the context. So the first part of the context that we should be aware of is the historical context. So Romans is a letter written to a church in Rome in the late 50s AD. Okay, And it's around the time when a guy called Nero, he's the guy on your left up there, Nero was the emperor in Rome. Now, he became a guy who was famous for being crazy. Okay, Apparently, the, 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 the line that people use is, uh, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. And what they meant was he was playing his fiddle while Rome burnt down. He was a pretty... Uh, Ugly bit of work, really, if we, if we look at it that way. But at the start of his reign, uh, he was just a regular kind of garden variety emperor. But what he would say, and what happened in the Roman world, was emperors were lifted up to another level. Not only were they highest authority in the land, but they were starting to be turned into gods. And so Nero would say, I am Lord. I am Lord. And what he meant was, I'm in charge. And for some people, it would mean, we're worshipping you as a god. 
Nero says, I am Lord. In Rome, at the same time, there are a group of people called Christians, you might have heard of them, uh, the early church, and they had a different statement. For the early church in Rome, they would say, Jesus is Lord. Now, we will sing that over and over again. If we find the right song, it'll be on repeat, and we'll just sing it and sing it and sing it, and we won't even notice. But it was profoundly political to say, Jesus is Lord, when the emperor over all the empire was saying, I am Lord. Just in saying Jesus in Lord, there was actually a challenge to the established authority. But in this, the Christians were following the lead of the Jews who'd been doing it for ages. The Jews would say, Yahweh is Lord, God, as he has revealed himself in the Old Testament. He's Lord. And so the context is a group of people who are saying something different to the world around them. They're saying something profoundly revolutionary. There's another Lord, and his name is Jesus. Now, Jesus himself had actually felt some of the challenges of being in a world where there was an emperor who was ruling. Does anyone remember why Jesus was born in Bethlehem? There was a census. Who ordered the census? Sorry? Caesar Augustus. He'd reorganized where everybody was in the world because he was in charge of the world. And so when Jesus is wandering around, people brought the challenge of, hey, how do you relate to Caesar? And they actually threw Jesus a curveball, and they were hoping to trap him, and they said, hey, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or shouldn't we? Now, do you remember Jesus' famous answer? Jesus said, show me one of the coins. And he said, whose head is on that coin? And the answer was, you guys probably don't recognize him, but the answer is Caesar's. And then he famously said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. In other words, what should we do when it comes to paying taxes? And the, the trick was, the trick was, if you say pay taxes, then you're saying, ah, we're all submitting ourselves to, to, to Caesar as God. But if you say don't pay taxes, then you're a revolutionary and you're going to try and overthrow the Romans. So Jesus said something very clever. He said, look at this coin, whose head? Caesar's. What should we do? We should give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Again, we see the challenge in Jesus' life when he comes right to the end. You see him up there with Pilate. Remember Easter. And Jesus is there charged with being another king. That's the notice that's going to be nailed over his head. And Pilate says to him, don't you know that I'm in control here? Don't you know that I have the power to set you free or to punish you? And amazingly, Jesus says in John 19... He says, you would have no authority if it wasn't given to you from above. So here's a man on trial for his life, and see, uh, uh, Pilate, who's uh, the man in charge, says, I will kill you or set you free. And he goes, don't worry. You'd have no power over me if it wasn't granted to you by the one who was over you, by God. So Jesus had this amazing context. Jesus was crucified. He died under Roman rule. Jesus died under Roman rule. But then Jesus did something pretty remarkable, which is the reason we're all here 2,000 years later. He was raised from the dead. And then, not just raised from the dead, but ascended to heaven, where we are told and encouraged he is ruling over Rome. He died under Roman rule. He was raised from the dead. And now he rules over Rome as the one who is the Lord of the universe. And then we've got Paul. 
And he writes in chapter 12. So the other piece of context is not just scripture, not just history, not just Jesus, but this bit here. In chapter 12, just before, it says in verses 1 to 2, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So what if you're a group of Christians in Rome and you were told, don't conform to the pattern of the world? What if you're a group of Christians in Rome who said, Jesus is Lord? And then you hear, don't conform to the pattern of this world. Well, you might think we're starting a revolutionary group in Rome. Don't be like the world. Let's throw the emperor out. But then Paul goes on in the rest of this chapter and outlines what sort of non-conforming he means. And it's not a change of government, but a change of heart. Have a look what it says here. In the rest of chapter 12, here's some highlights. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And then verse 21, don't be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. See, the revolution isn't a change of government. It really is a profoundly different way of thinking. And that's what the Christians were on about. And yet the question still stands, what do we do with the government? And that's what is happening in chapter 13. So if we see what's happening in chapter 13, let's, uh, let's have a look and read here. Now, someone said to me this morning, of course you had to use this as an illustration this week. Yes, I did. Uh, does anyone know what planet that is? Mars, fantastic, very excited about this. Now, on Mars, it looks a lot like this, rocks and red earth. What you won't find on Mars is anything that is created by anyone else other than the Americans. Well, there is a pile of debris from the Europeans who mixed up the miles and kilometres and crashed their probe into uh, Mars. But what you won't find anywhere else, there is nothing else on Mars that is created except the things that were put there by the Americans. And there's a wonderful InSight lander that landed there this week. I'm very excited about it. It's going to measure Mars quakes and the temperature of Mars. It, it's very exciting. But, but the point is, Mars is desolate. Nothing is there other than the things that have been created. And I want you to see that human life is at an absolute desert except for the things that God created. Have a look with me here at verse 1. Let everyone be subject to governing authorities for there is no authority except what God has established or what God has created. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. See, if we look at earth, there's no authorities that exist other than the authorities that God has put in charge. It's only God's authorities that are in charge. So all authority is God's authority. And what that means for us is we should therefore submit to authority. Because who's the boss? God, ultimately. We say that even in really lower key relationships. So in Colossians chapter 3, Paul's writing about slaves and masters, and here's why he tells them to submit. Have a listen. He says, slaves obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to carry their favor, 
but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as, see what it says there, working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know you receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So here he says, you need to obey your earthly masters. Why? Because they're appointed by God. You're actually serving God when you serve appointed authorities. It's the Lord Christ that you are serving when you submit to authority. It's your choice as Christians to do that. Now, uh, here's a picture of a wedding. Uh, It's got a group of people. I know it's a wedding because I did some little Googling around it because I'm like, that's a pretty cool setup. What are they holding? Can you guys see? I'm not sure if you can make it out on the picture. Can you see their swords? Now, they're Australian military personnel. Um, When do you think the last sword engagement was uh, for the Australian military? It was a long time ago. No no one uses swords. I had a lovely chat to Brian this morning who told me that he has a sword. It's entirely ceremonial. You, You never use the sword in battle. No one runs into battle with a sword. You don't need it. It just looks pretty. That looks very nice, doesn't it? So it's purely ceremonial. I want you to see that back in the time of Rome, swords weren't ceremonial. Have a listen to what it says here in verses 4 and 5. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. You see, the authority carries a mark of authority, which is a sword, and they'll use it if you get out of line. What we're encouraged to do here is to submit to the rulers because of good order and for good conscience because we're submitting to God. It's interesting to note that there are some things that can't get outlawed. Have a look at this from from Galatians chapter 5. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. See, even if the rulers carry a sword, there are some things they can't outline. They can't outlaw human kindness. They can't outlaw the fruit of the Spirit. And so it's interesting to note that good living, good living can't be outlawed. That's your choice. Just like submitting to authorities is your choice. So what do we learn from this little passage here? Well, up the top, I've got a king's crown for God. God appoints earthly rulers. That's the, that's the Australian coat of arms, if you don't know. Did you recognize that? Australian coat of arms, very good. So that's representative of government. So God appoints government. Why does he do that? Three reasons. God appoints government for the order of society. It keeps society together. It keeps society together because the government will punish and restrain evil and will reward what is good. That's why God puts government in charge. And you think, okay, but we don't need government, do we? I mean, what would happen if we took all the government out? Can you think of a situation like New Orleans after the the typhoon went through there? Can you think what happens in Mexico when the drug cartels chase off all the government? What happens to human society when we take government out? Everyone's really nice to each other and we all go on a holiday. Is that what happens? Guys, you see it, don't you? You know what happens. 
When government is withdrawn, chaos ensues and everybody loses. What that means is government is a common grace. It's a gift of God that helps all of society to function better. We are better off having government and it's actually the gift from God. That's a good thing to remember. Now, as, uh, as you go past a busker, because of course we all do this very often these days, uh, does anyone feel obligated to give them money? And yes, okay, one. Does anyone feel an obligation to tell them to get off your street because you're walking along and you don't want to see buskers? There was actually someone this morning who thought that, so there you go. But we don't feel obligated. We don't feel like we owe buskers anything generally. But I want you to see here, there are some people that we owe things to, and it's quite surprising, I think, for us, because we think we're totally free. Have a listen to what it says in verses 6 to 10. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit uh, adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. You see, we all owe, we have obligations and honour that we owe people. I don't know if you think about this, but if there are people that you owe respect to, if there are people that you owe honour to, you must do it as a Christian. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. I'm telling you churches should pay taxes, is that all right? It's not too hard in Australia. Our taxes actually do stuff, don't they? We have great roads. We have a great hospital system. We have schooling. It's largely free. There's a whole lot of benefits that come from our taxes. Pay them. That's good. But pay honour and respect too, even as Australians. How good's that? That's harder for us, isn't it? I'm not giving anyone respect unless they earn it. I don't know what the girls say, but that's a blokey thing to say. What do you say, girls? You're happy to give respect, is that right? But, but I think we, we naturally withhold it. And here it is saying that we owe others and we should fulfill that. More than that, that the greatest debt we owe is the one that we owe to others, which is love, because Jesus has loved us in an unpayably beautiful way. So we're supposed to, supposed to repay honour and we're supposed to show love to one another. Uh, now, Christmas is coming up. Um, I hope you're excited about Christmas. Are you excited about Christmas? In our household, Carrie has up a little board that tells us how many weeks until Christmas. How many is it, kids? Three, I'm pretty sure. Is that right? See, that's expectation for you, though, right? Crunching the time. Is it, is it there yet? Is it there yet? Christmas is coming, right? And some of you might be very excited. Is anyone ex- actually excited about Christmas coming? I see my children's hands. Yeah, great. Okay, good. And some hands at the back. I see yours. Good work, mate. Uh, and yours too, Cal. Oh, we know. Not, not, not excited about Christmas. So we, we're supposed to be excited. We're supposed to be looking forward to it. There's actually something for every Christian to be looking forward to in this passage. And it's something even better than Christmas. Have a look with me at verses 11 to 14. He says, And do this, that is, the respecting of authority and the paying of taxes, do this 
understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Guys, what's the day that's coming that he says that we should be excited about? The return of Jesus. Did you know Jesus is coming back? I've had a go at, at, every, at every service so far today, so join the, join the crowd. Uh, Jesus is coming back. What if you thought it was real? What if you thought Jesus could return and he would right wrongs, he would bring justice, he would reward the faithful, he would welcome us into his loving arms. He would show us a place where there's no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death. What if you thought that was about to happen? Soon. Soon. The day is coming. And if I told you that it was a particular day, you could know for sure, mate, that I was a heretic. Okay? What the Bible does, I'm telling you, which is it could be any time. It could be any time. Okay? Coming soon to an earth near you. The return of Jesus. If that was going to happen, how would you live? You should live differently. You should live in light of the day. And so we should stop our spiritual slumbering and holy living. This living in light of the fact that Jesus is going to return should characterize Christians. We should be ready to go, hey, Jesus, great to see you. I've been ready for you. You'll see how I lived last week is in line with what you would expect from me. And so we had that uh, passage read to us of the bride and the bridegroom. Interesting part about that parable is that the bridegroom is running late. Did you notice this? Not the, not the bride. Anyway, that's, that's the Jewish world, okay? The bridegroom is running late. But anyway, when he turns up, no one has everything ready. And the punchline that Jesus says is, therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day of hour, day or the hour. What's he saying? I could come back. This is your question. I could come back and you need to keep watch. You need to be ready. It should change how you live. We should live in light of the return of Jesus. Well, that's all pretty good. That's what Romans 13 says. But now we want to get onto the juicy bit. How do we view the relationship between church and state? And what we mean by that is, what's the relationship between a Christian person and the gathering of people called the church and the state, which is the government of the place where you live? How should those relate? There's a couple of responses that we can have. The first is escape. We go, I don't want to think about politics. What are the things we're not supposed to talk about at uh, dinner table? Money, church, religion, and politics. That's pretty good, isn't it? And tonight, I could ask you to keep giving money to the church. That'd be good. But uh, we're going to talk about religion and politics. Why would we go there? Who wants to talk about that? Let's escape. Let's run away and get a yurt. Let's leave. all Because we get cynical, don't we? We want to escape and leave it behind. And we could baptize it with a Christian saying, come out from among them and go, they're all, they're all corrupt liars. Who wants to be involved in politics? It's just a mess anyway. We'll wash our hands of it and leave them to it. And I think even if you don't run away to a yurt, I would say that many of us mentally have a little yurt that we retreat to. I don't want to read about Australian politics. It bores me to death. 
I look at the squabbling and the lack of leadership and it pains me. And so I run to my little mental yurt and ignore the thing. But I want to tell you tonight, guys, it's not good enough. I'm not behaving well. Because ultimately it's unfaithful and unloving with the power of democracy. What do I mean by that? There are people around this world tonight who would do literally anything to be able to change the leadership of their country. Do you guys know what's happening in Syria at the moment? You know the people who are being killed there? They have in their, the head of their country a person who is absolutely despotic with power and enforcing their will. If those people could change their government, what would they give for the chance to do that? And here in Australia, each of you who's over the age of 18 is entrusted with a precious power, the ability to cast a vote that will let you change government. And what do we do with this incredible power we have? Pay no attention and call them all a pack of... That's a tragedy. It is unfaithful and it's unloving and it is ultimately, I would say, unchristian. Escape is not an option for us. Well, what's the next option? The next option is to get really involved, but involved on the basis of entitlement. Entitlement is, starts off with this. We're a Christian country. Do you, do you know this? We're a Christian country. We have a heritage in Australia. We're founded. Why don't we? Why isn't that? Have, have, have you heard stuff like this? And the entitlement mentality says everything should be the way that we want it to be. Because we're Christians, and aren't we in the majority? Shouldn't we be able to enforce our will on everyone else? Well, that's not quite how it works in practice, not least of all because we aren't in the majority as Christians, I don't believe. Because, guys, if we were in the majority, there'd be a few more people here right now. Wouldn't there? I mean, I'm having a good day. I've seen lots of people at church today. It's fantastic. But I reckon when we have uh, carols there next week or two weeks' time, we're going to see a lot more people that aren't here tonight. If we think that we're in the majority, I think we're wrong. And so what happens if we engage with politics in an entitlement mentality? What happens is we overstate our position in society. That we're the boss. We should be able to dictate what's going on. And it makes us unduly angry. Everybody in society has a voice, but no one has more of a voice than anyone else, and entitlement makes us ugly and angry. There is a third option, which I'm calling engagement. Engagement is what it says in Jeremiah 27. He says to the people who've gone into exile, seek the good of the city and pray for it. What should Christians do? We should seek the good of our city and we should pray for it. We should pray for our leaders. And what that will mean is that we should embody the message of Jesus and engage as citizens. In other words, we should be truly Christian wherever we go. It shouldn't be that if you get into the political room, somehow I drop half of me out and I become a wholly secular being. That's rubbish. Be Christian where you are. And there's a wonderful article I was reading last night from Mike Baird. Do you remember Mike Baird, Premier of New South Wales? Full-on Christian guy. And he said, we will do things from a Christian perspective because that's who I am. I don't need to pretend, I don't need to leave that aside. Be truly Christian in the public realm, but do it as citizens. You have a right to a voice, not more voice than anyone else, but you have a voice. Use it as a Christian. So, so how do these two things relate, the church and the state? There's a couple of different approaches in two broad categories. The first is that the church and the state should be joined together. Now, in England, the church and the state are joined together. But it's the crown, it's the state 
that appoints where the bishops go. So the queen says, I want the bishop here. I'm going to appoint this person here. And the church says, yes. That's the church and the state together and the state being in charge. There's another example of where the church and the state are joined together, and that's the Vatican City in Italy, where the church governs the country that is the Vatican State. The church is in charge. And that kind of follows on from what's happened in history all the way since the Roman emperor became a Christian in 300 AD. There's a different take, and you guys will have heard about this. The Americans talk about a separation of church and state. And so here we have the church separated from the state. We keep them apart, and you can't have any churchy stuff coming into the public government stuff. Separated. Now, in Australia, did you know that we don't have a constitution that says we can't do that? We just pick up the American language and use it here. It's actually not part of our constitution. Interesting to note, isn't it? Okay, that's interesting. So in Australia, I think we do naturally separate church and state. There isn't no official, there's no official religion of Australia, although we pray in church. I mean, sorry, we pray in parliament. It's not like they're the same thing. And so what we do is we have this area that we engage between the church and the state, which is called politics. And that's great. We're not over them. They're not over us. We are engaging in a thing called politics. And in Australia, I want to say that there should be a diversity of platforms and a diversity of people. If you get one party that says that they're the Christian party, I want to tell you they're wrong. Why? Because there can be and there will be godly men and women who love Jesus in the Labor Party and the Liberal Party. There may even be godly people in the Greens. I'm not entirely sure. Okay, but it's possible, okay? But here's the thing. If someone says they are the Christian party, it's extremely unlikely because godly men and women who love Jesus may have differences on economic policy. It's all dry and boring, isn't it, right? But you might actually disagree on the best way to love the least. We can have differences of opinion, and that's okay. You can be Christian in the political space without having to have the Christian party. But be Christians among the political parties. Are you with me? And politics is a messy game. It'll involve compromise and hard thinking and prayer. But engage we must. Engage we must. So what happens when it goes bad? You've heard that authority is God's authority and you go, yeah, 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 but what about? Good question. Does the Bible ever view the fact that there might be a problem between the church and the state? Well, in the Old Testament, we see that. We see uh, when Daniel is told that he is not to pray. Do you remember that? So in, uh, in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel's told, don't pray any longer to anyone except the king. And so what does Daniel do? He goes home, opens his window on the top floor of his house, faces Jerusalem and prays. Of course, he's promptly arrested and thrown in the lion's den, but that's okay. He says, you know what? You can't outlaw me praying to my God. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes along and he says to Rakshak and Benny, he says, when the music plays, bow down to my image of gold that I've set up. You need to worship this image. And they say, oh, king, we want you to know that we won't bow down and worship this idol. The king says, well, we're going to fire up the big furnace and we're going to throw you in. And he says, well, that's okay. The God who we serve is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, we want you to know we won't bow down and worship the image of God you've set up. People who disagree with authority. Thirdly, you've got some amazing women in Egypt. The Pharaoh says to them, you must kill 
the Israelite boys as they're being born. He says that to the midwives. Now, firstly, that's naive in the extreme because midwives love babies, so that's a stupid thing to say. But he says to them, Israelite women, you need to kill the Israelite baby boys when they're born. And what do they do? Against the most powerful man in their world, Pharaoh, they say, we're not going to do it. Because we always get there too late. The Israelite women are so strong and healthy, they have their babies before we turn up. What can we do? It's actually a very subversive act against the Pharaoh of the world. And then you've got someone like Esther, who's in this position of authority when she finds out there's going to be a genocide. All of the Jews are about to be killed. So what does she do? She disobeys the order that says she can't approach the king as a woman. She dares to break that law that she might save her people. Amazing bravery, and God uses it to save her people. Or what about the apostles in the book of Acts? They're told, you can't preach about Jesus anymore. Don't do it or you'll be in jail. And they go, no problem. Next day, where are they found? They're standing in the temple courts proclaiming Jesus because they said, you've got to choose between God and man and we know who we're going to serve. We're going to serve God. So is it possible? People in the Bible have disagreed with authority when it's clear when it's the most loving thing to do, and we see that it is possible to disagree with authority. However, I want you to see also that it's the last resort. Our default as Christians should be submit to the authority that is put over us. We are not a revolutionary movement in terms of overthrowing governments, but we will be revolutionary in our love for our God. So how should we engage? Let me finish with this. Four things for you to think about. Firstly, we need to honour Jesus as Lord and our leaders as appointed by God. We've got to keep remembering, as we engage in politics, God's number one and the leaders who are put there we should honour. It's been said that we have the leaders that we pray for. So if you're turned off by your leaders in Australia, I'd say you've got exactly what you prayed for. Because I don't think we're very faithful in praying for our leaders. I'll speak for myself, not you, Okay. And so what we need to do is we need to seek God and we need to pray for our leaders, as Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2. Pray for all those in authority. Honour God and honour his leaders. Secondly, we need to love. How do we do politics? Politics is such a messy disaster. How do we do politics? We are supposed to be people who love our enemies. And we should love the least. We should love the least. That's on God's heart. Love our enemies and love the least. What does that mean? That means that as Christians in politics, we should embody humility and scorn cynicism. We should be the most humble, beautiful citizens in the country because we're Christians. And I want to warn us of a particular danger I've called platform blindness. What platform blindness is, I'm signed up to one political party. I'm all in with them. And they have some things that are great and they have some things that are appalling. And what happens is we decide, well... I can't break ranks, so I'm going to be a Christian here, but I'm going to agree with all the things that this party says. We're blind to the things that the party does that aren't pleasing to God. And what I want to say to you, church, as you engage with politics, watch for platform blindness. The things that your party will say are right that aren't, according to God's law. Two last points. We should render to God what is God and to Caesar what is Caesar's. We should engage first as citizens of heaven in the system that God has given us. So you are, first of all, a citizen of heaven. Secondly, we have a democracy, so get in and have a say. 
Render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God's what is God's. And lastly, to live hardworking and holy lives because it should be that we are holy people who are wholly engaged in loving God's word. Here's the quote from Jeremiah. We're going to finish on this. In Jeremiah 29, it says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Our vision here at New Life is to see New Life in Jesus come to every home. In Oran Park in the growing southwest, for three things. Their salvation, the good of the community, and the glory of God. And I want to tell you, when it comes to politics, this is firmly in the good of the community area. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, save us from cynicism. Save us from escaping. Save us from entitlement. Instead, Father, help us to wholly engage with holy lives. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay. There's some things about politics and Christians. We did it. You got there. Now, uh, I've just spent some time doing that. Are there any questions that naturally arise from that? Things that you'd like to ask me to clarify? Uh, We've been taking statements from the floor recently. If you want to make a statement, you can do that. Uh, We've got some comments. Tom. Uh, Thanks, Stuart. Very helpful. Um, I don't know if people saw, but the German Chancellor Angela Merkel met uh, Scott Morrison yesterday or today. And she had some cheat notes for the picture of him and because uh, apparently she's had eight Australian prime ministers since she's been in power. And my point is, trying to understand what it says here in Romans, um, and we looked at this with the kids last week as well, is how, how God has established our leaders. So I guess why has God established our leaders in that way? <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna push you harder, Tom. Tell me what the in that way is that you're troubled if, by. If our leaders, and we talked about it, that you know there seems to be some infighting in both political main parties and you sure. know, lack of leadership, and yet God says that you know I don't know. Right. It's, I feel and like it, it, it did God has God allowed it or has He actually put them there or there's a, there's a wonderful the there's a wonderful quote from Winston Churchill. I don't know if you guys have heard it. Uh, Democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other kinds. You heard that before? Democracy is the worst kind of government except for all the other kinds. In other words, democracy is always going to be a mess. It's always about compromise. It's always about clumping together enough people who have a will to do something. And so it always looks messy, Tom. And um, I don't think there's anything particularly glorious about the Australian political domestic situation. I think it's a disaster. And I'm trying to learn to honour my leaders and to engage with it rather than just write it off. What do I say to God? God, why have you made me this way? I think we end up coming back to, uh, to Job, don't we? Where we just go, Job asked me a bunch of questions and I say, I submit to you, God, I spoke of things I don't know. I don't know why the world looks as messed up as it is. I think human sinfulness comes into it and I think it impacts the common grace that God's given us. He's given us government and sin has messed up the people who are governing. So we get the general benefit and we see all the fallenness shot through it. Does that make sense? Pray for our politicians. Become one. Isn't that a crazy thing? Let's have a laugh, church. Ah, it's funny. But how does it get better? Would it be for us that we would feel much happier standing on the sidelines, cynically sniping at our politicians, 
rather than becoming one to change the system? Anyway, I leave that challenge to you. It's a good question, Tom. Thank you. Is there another question? Kara. Um, so just getting back to the Romans 13, um, the authorities that exist have been established by God. Um, I presume that means everywhere in the world as well. So if you're talking about countries that have possible dictatorships and things like that, if you're a Christian in that country, do you follow what they say until it disagrees with the Bible and God's teaching? Or like, how does that work for someone in a really hard situation? Yeah. Uh, look, I think in the end, uh, Christians will naturally work to have a government that looks more and more like the good gift that God would give us. If we have a despot over us, like in, um, in, a, in uh, Syria, would it be Christian to just submit and say, we think your use of chemical weapons is perfectly acceptable? I, I don't think so. I think it's profoundly unloving. And so the Christian could say, I'm going to be energetically engaged in submitting as I need to at the present time, but doing whatever I can to change the government so that it might be more loving to my neighbour who's around me. Does that make sense? It's tough, but I think it's the right thing to do. In the end, we want to bring government more and more in line with what it should be doing. It should be ordering society, rewarding good and punishing evil. And where that's broken down, it's not in line with the best that God has for it. So I think Christians should submit in every area that they can, and where it gets out of line from that, they should work to bring into place a, a government that would be in line with what God would want. There's no easy answers. It's always fraught. Our default should be to obey and submit where we can, but to stand against where we can't. And we should pray for our brothers and sisters who have to make their choices because I don't think it's easy. Yeah, Peter. Sorry, go again, Peter. Sorry, I didn't catch you. Isn't life designed to teach us what to do and not to do? By example, my life has taught me many things. Sure. So you've seen through experience, Peter, how yeah. we should act in the world. Is that, is that right? It's your choice. God gives you the choice. Yep. So as Christians, we should make choices that are in line with what he's told us, and you'll find more and more that they are for our good. You can influence others around you. That's right. Um, good the, job. That's right. So we should actually be actively working to spread that so that more and more people find the blessing of being in line with what God's... Like a Christmas service. Like a Christmas service, for instance. Yeah, good on you, Peter. We should invite people to come along. I love that that's been uh, connected in there. That's great, mate. Thank you. Was there one more question? Yes, over here. Yeah, Trudy. You started off this sermon with um, the Penny Wong thing. Penny Wong, yes. Or Penny Wong, whatever her name is. I don't really particularly like her, but obviously. Um, why did you start off with that? And how do we, as Christians, well, do we agree with... Yep. that or do we just pray <laughs> against that or it's a really good question this is the most practical thing here right what do we do with uh, the legislation that's before our parliament at the moment F first thing i think we could we could do and i'm not up to speed with this i have met our local member but i probably should write to our local member and say i would like you to know it would be helpful if you x y and z okay we can actually have a voice there's literally an office down in in camden you can go and visit right uh, so that's our state one. Our, where is Freelander? Does anyone know where Freelander's office is? Campbelltown, Sorry? I think. Campbelltown. Campbelltown. You could drive there and make an appointment and see him. Now, guys, we, that is so antithetical to the way we think as Christians, isn't it? 
Like how many of you have naturally thought, I should rock up and see my local member? But there is no reason we shouldn't do that. And if we did graciously, with humility, guess what he would hear? From Christians who were genuinely concerned. And when he goes to make that vote in Parliament, he would have us in his mind. So we could do that. Secondly, we definitely should pray. Thirdly, we should actually get up to speed with what's at stake here. Because I think a whole bunch of us, remember it said, wake up from your slumber? We are asleep at the wheel as Australian Christians, definitely, when it comes to politics. Some of us are trading from entitlement. Some of us are completely asleep. I don't think there's very much healthy engagement in between, okay? So I I think we just need to do better. And we need to switch on and pay attention. So in answer to the very specific thing at the moment, um, I probably should write to Mike Freelander and say, hey, Mike, we don't want you to do this. Can you rethink a different set of uh, changes that wouldn't, in fact, be adjustments to the anti-discrimination law, but a positive enshrinement of the rights to freedom of religion? This is... Should be... Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, I, no, no, here's the difference. I can tell him what I think as a citizen. When I demand he does it, I'm entitled. Do you, do you see the difference? Church, you have as much right to an to a opinion as everyone else in Australia, but you don't get any more, your votes aren't any more valuable than anyone else, but they are valuable on their own. So we should engage and we should speak, but we don't speak with entitlement. Does that make sense? So we humbly submit that it would be better to go for an enshrinement of rights rather than a change to discrimination. I think that's the approach we should take. And in the meantime, pray like crazy that amendments get up. It's a mess. And basically what they should do is pull the handbrake on and say, let's not try and race this through before Christmas. I think Darren put a very helpful article up that I read this afternoon, which is basically just saying they're crazy trying to crush this through. We're going to make a mistake with something that really matters. Breaks on. Let's think about it properly in light of the Ruddick Review. Now, that feels too politicky, doesn't it? But here's the thing, church. Don't be ignorant. Don't be asleep. Let's engage because what's at stake really matters. I'm going to leave it there. We need to pray better. We need to engage more. We're going to get to the point where we do something that uh, we love doing together, which is celebrating the Lord's Supper. Uh, We do this to remember those things that we talked about that uh, are part of Jesus' story. So Jesus died, he was raised, and he rules today. And so what we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper is we remember all of that. So as I get this bread out here and the juice, if you are trusting in Jesus, we want to encourage you to take the bread and the juice. If you're a child who's here today and you haven't talked to your parents about it and we haven't worked this through, then can I encourage you to let the bread and the juice just go by. Let me grab these. You know what we do here, church, don't you? A little call and response. Are you ready? And remember, we talked about being eager for the return of Jesus. You'll like that line when it comes up. Uh, Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night before he died, Jesus took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the meal, he took the cup and again, giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you for these gifts of your creation and pray that we who eat and drink them in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, believing our Saviour's word, may be partakers of his body and blood. Amen. As we eat this bread and drink this cup, and we do this until he returns. There we go. That's the bit that we're looking for. Well, come, let us eat and drink in remembrance that Christ died for us and feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. I'm going to pass the bread and the juice around, if you can hang on to it, uh, and we'll uh, eat it together, eat and drink together. Um, Alec and Annabelle, do you guys want to come and give me a hand? That'd be great. And Jeff, do you want to come and give me a hand? Oh, Michael, you're coming. That's all right. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Thanks, Annabelle.